This is 100 Things I'll Miss When I'm Dead. I'm Michael Colville Anderson. Welcome to my happy place. My podcast where I self-medicate against my constant overthinking and anxiety about my own mortality with tiny happy pills of positivity and reflection. Hey everybody, another week, another successful bout of surviving. Once again, thanks to all those who have been buying me a coffee over at buymeacoffee.com slash Michael, M-I-K-A-E-L. Warms my heart on this cold winter day in Copenhagen. My urbanism podcast, The Life-Sized City, has been out for a while now, but it's available wherever you get your podcasts if you're interested. And please slap some shiny stars or write a review if you're listening to this podcast through Apple. It helps spread the word. Let's do it. Episode 9. Number 44. Bridges. I haven't done any research on this, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say that I think everyone has an answer to the question, what is your favorite bridge? It could be a small wooden bridge across the pond where you grew up, or a massive engineering wonder. But I bet you have a favorite. If you remember me in an earlier episode getting all romantic about stairs, well, bridges are a natural extension of that for me. After stairs, bridges have to be the next thing that humans constructed. Even when we were living in tents, we needed to cross bodies of water. The first bridge-like structures were stepping stones and fallen trees, maybe naturally occurring, but we soon copied the concept and expanded upon it. There is so much naturally occurring poetry and beauty in the very idea of bridges. You've heard the metaphor before, we need to build bridges, or build bridges, not walls. Apart from the obvious benefit of being able to provide access across water or valleys, bridges are something we understand in a broader context. All the notes of the European Union currency, the euro, feature bridges. It's interesting how none of these bridges actually exist. There are countless bridges of note in the European Union, and I guess it was impossible to select a handful for the currency. So, an artist designed the images based on the various periods of architectural history. They may not exist, but many of them look like bridges we know. But choosing bridges as a grand metaphor for the European Union was an obvious choice. Looking at bridges that we like is pleasurable seeing their span and their architecture. I discovered that their appeal is also present when you can't actually see them. I had a route to work at a job a few years ago that took me over Copenhagen Harbor every morning and every afternoon, and I noticed a pattern amongst all the other cycling citizens. Once they got up to the middle of the bridge, they would invariably and casually glance off to the side, looking at the harbor, the sky, whatever they were looking at. The bridge was a vantage point. And looking at the water was, I assume, enjoyable. I did it myself, every single time. I gathered data about it for a while. Eight or nine times out of ten, people would glance at the harbor. The bridge was doing its job, helping us get to the other side without having to swim. But it had a subconscious benefit as well. My favorite bridge? I've always been partial to the Lionsgate Bridge in Vancouver. I used to ride my bike over it every single day back in 1986. I think, though, that Pont Neuf in Paris is my favorite. 
It's the oldest bridge in Paris, still in its original form. It's a bridge designed for spending time, with half-circles jutting out and granite benches to sit on. For added bonus points for this urbanist, it was the first bridge in the world to ever feature sidewalks. I think my favorite bridges would have to be the ones that no longer exist. Those huge bridges in some European cities, including Paris, that had buildings packed onto them and a street life of their own. Huge, amazing urban bridges. Some smaller ones still exist, like Ponte Vecchio in Florence, and especially Kremabrücke in Erfurt, Germany, one of the last remaining bridges in the world that has inhabited buildings. Man, I would love to live on a bridge. Number 45. Crying. One of the quotes that has featured most often in my life is from William Faulkner. Between grief and nothing, I will take grief. I have made a point of embracing the full range of human emotions and not avoiding them, even if they're uncomfortable. Unsurprisingly, I'm not going to miss the many things that cause crying, but the act of crying itself is something I cherish. What is crying? It's really just a sad orgasm, if you think about it. A brain and heart massage that leaves you even more in touch with your emotions. It's that satisfying click when your rice cooker is done its cooking or your kettle is done with boiling. It's a release. I know that many people fear crying. It's perceived as a weakness, a loss of control. But I see it as a tool. It is a standard feature included in the package we get as homo sapiens. It seems logical to use it whenever you need to. Not doing so is like living in a home but refusing to use the fridge. Or buying a laptop but never opening the browser. Sure, it is a loss of control. Okay, maybe a better word is relinquishment. Because you don't lose control, you merely hand it over to another department. But even when we allow ourselves to cry, we are still desperate to control the process. I'll cry just a little bit. Not too much. Okay, the tears are flowing, but keep it right there at that level, no more than that. It's an ongoing wrestling match between the desire of our emotions to unfold and our inherent desire to stay in control. We remain reluctant to open the taps and just let it go. I think another issue we have to deal with is that we don't think we look good when we cry, which is quite possibly true. When someone laughs in a comical way, uncontrollably, it's still pleasing to see. When someone really starts sobbing, it's awkward. They're showing their weakness, and we find it uncomfortable to see that and their distorted, painful expression. I remember the first time I saw a stranger cry. I mentioned it in episode 5, the woman I found crying in the back alley when I was 11, and I took her home to my mom. It was awkward, absolutely, but she needed help. So what's the kind of crying that we love the most in TV or cinema? Think about it. What is likely to move you the most? That strong oak tree of a character. Every muscle in their face is tense as they struggle to contain their emotions. And then, right there, one single tear rolls dramatically down their cheek. Cue the music. Cue your own eyes welling up. Hollywood knows its thing. We respect that controlled crying and probably wish that we could cry like that as well. Every single time. All cinematic-like. Humans are pretty cool. We can generate entire seasons and weather systems. The fog of hangovers, the storm of our rage, the sunshine of our joy, the blizzard of confusion, and, of course, 
the rain of our tears. Rain nourishes and cleanses. It nurtures life. Think of the sweet smell after the rain, the bright skies and sunshine. The question of why we cry has been around since humans started tearing up. For centuries, people thought tears originated in the heart. The Bible, not exactly a credible scientific reference, describes tears as the byproduct of when the heart's material weakens and turns into water. Later, in the time of Hippocrates, the theory was that the mind was the trigger for tears. In the 1600s, the prevailing theory was that our emotions, in particular love, heated the heart, and that generated water vapor in order to cool itself down. The vapor would rise through your body to your head, condense near your eyes, and tears would form. Modern research on crying is still in its infancy. There seem to be two experts out there on the subject, and they don't often agree about the reasons for why we cry. We do know, however, that there are three types of tears. First, the basal tears. These are the working class, run-of-the-mill, functional tears that prevent your eyes from drying out. Then there are the reflex tears. Their job is to react to external influences. They form to cleanse your eyes from dust or the vapor when you cut onions, for example. Lastly, we have the psychic tears. These are the liquid manifestation of our emotions. Amazingly, these tears have a completely different chemical composition than the other two. They have higher concentrations of protein-based hormones, including prolactin, as well as the neurotransmitter leucine encephalin, a painkiller produced when one experiences stress. So crying is a way to relieve pain. Your body releases endorphins and oxytocin. It's a self-soothing behavior. But again, why do we cry? It's all that babies can do to communicate their needs, and it causes us to react to their vulnerability and show compassion. We cry to get help, to get people to say, hey, are you okay? This forms and strengthens social bonds. But from an evolutionary perspective, crying doesn't seem like much of an advantage. Your emotions distract you, and the tears, they blur your vision. Not very advantageous if you need to run from danger. So the primary function seems to be generating sympathy from others in the flock and promoting social bonding. Now we can science the hell out of crying. It's super interesting. But for the entire history of Homo sapiens, we've regarded it as mysterious and poetic. Quotes on crying feature an all-star cast. Shakespeare said, To weep is to make less the depth of grief. It is such a secret place, the land of tears, wrote Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. Heaven knows we never need to be ashamed of our tears, for they are the rain upon the blinding dust of earth, overlying our hard hearts. Charles Dickens The legendary Italian actor, Sophia Loren, If you haven't cried, your eyes can't be beautiful. Me? I cry easily. I always have. I probably tried to control it when I was younger, but now I've learned that it is, like I said, a sad orgasm. I know that it will benefit me. I don't walk around the streets and burst into tears in public. I do exercise some control. There are many times when I don't want to cry. At my former company, when cool employees or interns were leaving, I often couldn't get myself to do the little speech, which was my job as the boss. I knew that I'd get all emotional. That was irritating that I couldn't control it at times like that. Other times, I feel the need to cry. I suffer from anxiety disorder, and near the end of having a bad episode, I will try to cry. 
I will do everything I can to do so. It often involves choosing some film on Netflix that will guarantee an emotional reaction and trigger the tears. When the flow starts, I can already feel the positive result. That word, tearjerker, is a word for a reason. I admire the cultures where crying is fully accepted and even expected. You see it on the news from faraway places where the women are seen to be sobbing and wailing at a funeral. That's a far cry from here, for example, in the reserved Nordic countries, where we try to keep everything bottled up. I have noticed that I'm more prone to tears as I grow older. I saw this happen to my dad. He was a strong, silent individual that couldn't really express any emotion, due in large part to a tough upbringing in the north of Denmark. Until he grew older and became a grand and great-grandfather. And then he started to soften. Softened to the point where a simple anecdote would cause him to tear up and his voice to crack. For example, I remember him telling me about how he sold his car to a young Russian couple, recent immigrants. They were such a nice couple. They got some good jobs and they just came here to build a better life. And I'm like, dude, you just sold them a car. That's all. My family has a hardcore dark humor, so we always make fun and impersonate each other, including my dad and that anecdote about selling a used car to some Russians. But now I wonder if others have experienced the same thing while aging. I never saw my mother cry, now that I think of it. That fit her character well. But I believe it's important for children to see their parents cry, to show their true emotions, but also to legitimize crying as an acceptable emotional outlet. I was staring in the mirror the other day and thinking about this segment, studying my face. I was wondering if, as we age, our tears change course on their journey down our cheeks. My face is no longer the smooth prairies of my youth. There are valleys, culverts, wrinkled obstacles. Tears are water, and water follows the landscape. When crying, my face scrunches up and accentuates the texture of the skin's landscape. Do my tears take longer to flow down my face now compared to when I was young? How different is the trajectory? When a tear is allowed to roll unencumbered down my face, it finally reaches that area around the corner of my mouth, and it gets all tickly. Is it less tickly now than when I was young, now that my skin is more worn and weathered? I lamented that I didn't have any comparative research, any film clips of my tears when I was young to compare with now. Hey, weirder research has certainly been done in the world of science. The last time I cried? That would be last week, when I read news of a friend of mine whose young son lost the battle against a brutal and rare form of cancer, a kid I had never met. But at that moment, it hit me, and the valves opened, and I let them. It wasn't a conscious decision when the tears welled up, but it was a choice to let them flow. It seemed like a suitable reaction, and, in retrospect, a respectable way to honor that kid and my friend and his family. I just remembered that expression, to have a good cry. Yeah, I just think we should change the brand of crying. Let's let them flow when they need to flow, those tears. Let's embrace this fantastic tool we have been equipped with as humans. It sets us apart from much of the animal kingdom. Let's use it a lot more. Number 46, Cinema. The cinema has always been a temple to me. That sounds like a nice and suitable metaphor, I thought, when I started writing it. But then I thought about it and how apt it really is. Denmark is one of the world's most secular, non-religious countries, but we still haven't managed to separate church and state 
and we have a church ministry. I think that's weird. But anyway, anyone can apply to have their faith recognized as an official faith. For example, the original faith of our forefathers before Christianity showed up is the Asa faith. A group of followers applied and their denomination was granted official faith status in Denmark in 2003. A couple of years later, a group of football fans from FC Copenhagen applied as well, seeking to be recognized as an official denomination under the religion of football. I read a book about this process and it was so interesting. They had really done their homework in preparing the application and all the comparisons between their love of their football club and the doctrines of existing religions were identical. They made it past the first firewall, so the church ministry had to take their application seriously. They explained how they have a god, football, and their denomination, fans of FC Copenhagen, have a place of worship, the stadium, a religious leader, the coach, saints, the legendary players, and even miracles, various comeback matches, etc. They ended up having their application rejected in 2007, but it went to the wire. If the church ministry had approved it, then they could expect hundreds and hundreds of applications from other groups of fans all over the country. That would really open a Pandora's box. Although in Argentina, there is an Iglesia Maradoniana, a church dedicated to Diego Maradona, based on the same principles. Okay, that was a long detour to get to my point, that in many ways, cinema is very similar. There is a place of worship, saints, fantastic, and fantastical storytelling like in the traditional religions. While I'm not a fanatic believer or even a hardcore film geek, the cinema is really the most temple-like place in my life. When I was growing up, it was a main destination for entertainment and for my social life. My parents never had more than a few TV channels, so going to the movies was also a necessity. This was a time right at the very beginning of the VHS wave, where people could watch films at home. I remember being amazed by that technological advance. But nevertheless, I went through the standard phase of seeing all the latest films with friends or going on awkward teenage dates at various cineplexes. In my late teens, I started to branch out into art house and foreign films, which are still both weird words to me. If you watch a low-budget Danish film in a cinema in North America, I guess it could be both those things. But in Denmark, it's just the latest film. But that started a deep-dive love of all cinema. Whole new worlds opened up that weren't the cookie-cutter Hollywood dramaturgy. There were different storytelling styles, genres, moods, dilemmas. From that moment on, I made a point of frequenting the tiny art house cinemas in every city I've lived in around the world. I must admit that I'm in a cinema much less these days with a busy travel life. I watch series on streaming services on a large television in my living room, and I catch up with the latest films, usually when I'm on an airplane. If I find time here at home, the first cinemas I check to see what's playing are the ones showing foreign films. I developed some personal rules when I was young, rules I still stick to when I go to the cinema today. Generally, I go alone. If that dark space with its flickering light is in fact a temple, I need to sit alone with the experience of whatever story is being told. More importantly, I need to be alone afterwards. Walking out into the light, I need to digest what I've seen. It can take minutes or hours, depending on the film. The last thing I want to do is talk to somebody. I don't eat popcorn. My favorite cinema in Copenhagen doesn't even serve it. It's a bit of a purist decision on their part. Popcorn in cinemas started being sold in America in order to make people thirsty so they'd buy more drinks. 
A cinema makes most of its money on soft drinks and then on popcorn. If I'm at my favorite cinema in the evening here in Copenhagen, I'll grab a glass of wine. Having kids, I've relaxed these rules for obvious reasons when we've gone to see films together. But one thing's for certain. I decide where we sit. And for a few decades now, I prefer to sit in the first or second row. I always wanted the cinema to be a larger-than-life experience, so I need to be close to the screen. One of my kids noticed the age recommendation that appears on the top left of the screen when a Netflix series starts and asked what that was. Then they got a lesson in censorship. Unlike other countries, Denmark has a very loose system for rating age appropriateness for films. There is suitable for all. Suitable for all, but under 7 years old is not recommended. Suitable for children over 11, and then suitable for children over 15. That's it. Any kid over 7 can see any film if they're with someone who is over 18. But neither of my kids have ever been stopped from seeing a film, even if they were under the age recommendation. Random memories are popping into my head here. When I was a very broke 18-year-old living in Vancouver, a friend and I knew that if we went to the Cineplex on Granville Street on a Monday, there weren't many staff working. We would show up for the first showing around noon, buy a ticket, but then sneak into the next cinema, and then the next one, until, by the end of the day, we had seen five films for the price of one. I don't know what film I've seen the most in an actual cinema. Probably something in the 1980s. But the film I've seen the most is Beverly Hills Cop, thanks to VHS. I've seen it easily around 100 times. With a friend of mine in high school, we'd watch it over and over again until we knew all the lines, and then would watch it with the sound off and play the roles ourselves. I'm happy to see a film with someone if it's an outdoor cinema. We have them in the summer here in Copenhagen, and rolling up on a cargo bike with a bottle of wine and some snacks is magical. I really need more outdoor cinemas in my life. In the episode of this podcast where I talk about missing photography when I'm dead, I mentioned a book that I read once a year, On Photography, by Susan Sontag. Another book that I have reread dozens of times is The Secret Language of Film, by the French screenwriter Jean-Claude Carrière. It is an amazing book about the history of cinema, and cinema as an ever-evolving language. It sums up everything I love about the art form. Interestingly, I've never been a theater dude. I simply don't like it. Never could make myself enjoy it. Cinema has a distance and a mystery that is unbeatable. Sitting in a cinema will always feel like I'm a secret and privileged spectator to other people's dreams. You've been listening to 100 Things I'll Miss When I'm Dead. If you like what you're hearing, slap some shiny stars on the rating on iTunes, and you can buy me a coffee. Check out how over at buymeacoffee.com slash Michael, M-I-K-A-E-L. I'm Michael Koval-Anderson. Catch you next time, and thanks for listening. <laughs>